Let's be honest, few humans enjoy meetings and many feel trapped in meetings. As leaders, we don't want to burden those we lead, but meetings can seem to do that more often than not. We wanted to address the pain of meetings through the Meetings with Saints Library. Here we have 15 plus presentations dedicated to improving the meetings we run. We have experts in the field addressing topics like getting people involved in meetings, staying on task, dealing with conflict in meetings, and a ton more. We'd love you to explore the full Meetings with Saints library over 14 days at no cost to you. You can do this by visiting leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org 14. We'll also give you access to all of our virtual libraries that educate about other leadership topics. It's really good stuff. So visit leadingsaints.org 14 or click the link in the show notes. Hey, if you're a newbie to Leading Saints, it's important that you know, what is this Leading Saints thing? Well, Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And the way we do that is through content creation. So we have this phenomenal podcast, we have a newsletter, we have virtual conferences, so much more. And articles on our website, I mean, I could go on and on, right? <laughs> And we encourage you to uh, jump in, check out Leading Saints, uh, go to the search bar at leadingsaints.org and type in some topics and see what pops up. We're just glad you're here to join us. Today, I'm in the home of Lee Van Dam. Welcome to the Leading Saints podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, that now I'm trying to think. So this is where I found your book. I was on, I always take a glance at the the bestsellers on Amazon of, you know, they have different categories, Mormonism, the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, and uh, this book called The Sacrament, A Historic View popped up there. And I thought, that sounds really interesting. Why haven't I heard about this yet? <laughs> and uh, I chased you down through Facebook, sent you a Facebook message, and you, you replied and sent me a book. And long story short, here we are. So... How long, like, what's the genesis of this book? You told me a little bit about it, but tell the audience. Well, for many years, I've been interested in the sacrament and its history. And I've collected things, put them in a file, stories and examples and anecdotes. And Uh uh, finally, I thought, let's write a book about it. Nice. Nice. And uh, how long did it actually take you when you thought, I'm going to do the book? I'm a slow writer, and I, (laughs) I do it just as I have the desire to do it. So it takes a couple of years for me to write a book. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And it was just fascinating. You know, I feel like I have a general grasp on church history and, you know, things that happened and whatnot. But man, I learned so much from this book, oh. just the little intricacies. So I'm so glad you started collecting that information way back when. Oh, thank so, you. But let's first, let's uh, start about your background a little bit. You've been a mission president in Hong Kong. Yes. And you served as a missionary as a young, as a young man in Hong Kong. I did. And uh, what do you remember from that story of being called as a mission president? Well... I mean, what a privilege to go back to the same place where you served as a young missionary and to go back with your wife. See, there are not a lot of callings in the church that you can do with your wife. Very true. And so being a mission president, what they call them now mission leaders, mission leaders and wife, uh, that's a great privilege. I couldn't think of anything I'd rather do. Yeah. Was it something that that just came out of the blue or... Yeah, you don't apply for those things. Right. They just do you get a phone call and they say, "Can you come in for a visit?" Yeah, you know. Before you know it, you're headed to Hong Kong. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and before that, did you have much leadership experience or in the church? 
I guess, uh, yes, I've been a bishop and in a stake presidency and high council and yeah. things like that. Yeah. Nice, nice. And what did you do for your career? I have a real estate background. I've been involved in real estate development with a firm, and then I've had my own company that does management and consulting and sales and things like that. Nice. And were you working uh, at the time of your call as a mission president? I was. Took I was, a few years off? Took <laughs> a few years off. Put everything on the shelf. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Now, this isn't your first book. What are some of the other books that you've written? First book was about cruising. We love to cruise, so I wrote a book about that. Then one about golf. I love the golf. Not very good at it, but I like to tell stories about golf. And then the, the third one is about Hong Kong. Nice. And then this one is the fourth one. Is the Hong Kong connected to the church at all, or is it just for anybody who wants to go to Hong Kong? For anybody who wants to go to Hong Kong. It's not a true travel book. It's more of an experience book. If you were to go to Hong Kong, what should you do? And a chapter about, the, about medicine in Hong Kong and uh-huh. about beliefs of Buddhists and people like that. And yeah. Yeah. So... There is a chapter that's very religious about religion in Hong Kong, but the book is broader than just religion. Yeah. So let's just hit those three books real quick. What's the best Hong Kong tip if someone's going there tomorrow? What do they got to make sure they do? Well, don't try to do it in one day. I, <laughs> I suggest two or three days, okay. and then there's, the book suggests an itinerary of what you might want to do. Nice. What's the favorite food there? Something you got to try, the cuisine. Number 33. Number 33. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> There's a chapter about that. Oh, okay. Somebody was asked, well, what's your favorite Chinese food? And whatever number he used was, oh, I, I really, really like number 33. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. I like sweet and sour pork, and I, I love um, Peking duck. Wow. And that's a good good dinner. Okay. Not, not a big fan of uh, chicken feet, <laughs> but they're popular. And, really? Yeah, yeah. I've heard that. Ugh, I can't imagine. <laughs> What about golfing? What's your best golf tip or that you share in the book? Again, I'm not trying to tell anybody how to golf because I don't do okay. that. But it's a book about golf, about the experience and about the whole idea of playing golf. Uh, talks about golf balls and how interesting they are. Do you know, for instance, that at any given time, this has been studied scientifically, at any given time, there is a golf ball in the air somewhere in the world. Oh my goodness. That, I and mean, have when you, you thought sit about think that? about that, it's like, that's yeah. probably true, but I've yeah. never thought. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So right now there's a golf ball. There's a golf ball in there right, right now. <laughs> nice. And there's probably somebody that's not hitting it very straight. Like that's I, right. I, it's right. probably going to end up in the rough zone. <laughs> right. yeah. There's always a golf ball in the world in the lake. That's that I know from personal experience. So yeah. What about cruising? I, I went on my first cruise this past January, going again this, this coming January. At, at any cruise tip that maybe I've totally missed? Try to remember that cruises are like automobiles. Uh-huh. So there are fancy cruises and there are less fancy cruises. There are Chevrolets and there are Porsches. So part of the idea is to pick the right itinerary, but also to get the ship that you'd be comfortable on. Uh-huh. Some are very young-oriented ships that party a lot. Others Cruise, are, as they call them. <laughs> yeah. Others are for people like my wife and I, where we just enjoy seeing things and going to ports and having nice food. Yeah. Yeah, ours was, uh, you know, I think the demographic was a little bit older, so it wasn't, there wasn't like water slides or all these yeah. things, but it was really nice. The food was great, beautiful views, and man, I the spa was great, the, the yeah. gym was awesome, so, yeah. but yeah, I've heard that they, they vary quite a bit. So. And you'll find it's a, it's a real bargain. If you were to try to do the same things without being on a cruise ship, go to the same ports and do the same type of thing, you'd spend more than you oh, do really? on a cruise. So, cruising is considered to be a pretty good bargain. Especially now, 
for two years, cruise ships yeah. couldn't sail. They couldn't pay people to walk on those. So, <laughs> so now they're open again, and there are some deals out there. Yeah. So when's your next cruise? We just got back from one. <laughs> oh, you did? Where'd you go? <laughs> we cruised on the Danube River in Europe. Oh, wow. We had a fun thing. We went to the Oberammergau Passion Play, uh-huh. held every 10 years in the little village of Oberammergau, Oberammergau in Germany. And as part of that, we spent the first week traveling through Germany and Austria, and then we went on a, a riverboat on the Danube for the last uh, part of the, yeah. the trip. Wow. Do you know about Oberammergau? I can't even say I've heard of that before. I, I'm getting you off course, but <laughs> let, me, let me tell you about it. So okay. four or 500 years ago, there's this little village in uh, Germany, and there's the Black Plague going through uh-huh. Europe, and it's wiping out villages, and just hundreds of thousands of people are dying. So these dear people in the city, in the little village of Oberammergau, prayed to Heavenly Father. They said, if you will save our village, we will present a play about Jesus Christ and do that faithfully. Oh, wow. They were spared. So then they began putting on a passion play. At first they did it each year. Then it became every 10 years. And so ever since the start, so it's like 400 years now, they have put on this passion play in this little village. So it was supposed to be in 2020, but COVID postponed to 2022. So to the year 2000, year 210, year 2020, it'll be in 2030. Again. Oh, wow. Here are the rules. There are about 2,000 people involved in this passion play. It goes all day long, and they put it on on successive days. But it's a long thing, and it's in German. But... Uh, in order to be in the play and the caster to do the stage things or be the singers or the orchestra, you have to have been born in Oberammergau, little village. Oh, wow. Or you need to have lived there for 20 years. So it's very <laughs> particular. Yeah. So it's kind of cool. You see hundreds of people on the stage acting out the triumphant entry into Jerusalem by Christ. All of them are Oberammergau people. Wow. It's really good. Interesting. So is it... Uh, hard to get into, like as far as buy a ticket and go? Tough ticket. You have to, is there a waiting list or lottery or? Yeah, we first applied to go to it in October of 2017. Oh, wow. So that was three years before the play. We we arranged to get tickets. Wow. So, and, yeah. Yeah, it's, wow. a, it's a tough ticket. Interesting. Yeah. Well, man, little factoid. You should go. I do. It's on my bucket list now. Oh, over so. Armagau Great little city. Just really neat. Cool. Awesome. So this is your first, the, the Sacrament Historic View, this is your first uh, church-related book. It is. And was that intimidating at all, or you were make it more exciting? It is. And I should I should say, I'm not trying to create any kind of new doctrine in this. Yeah, yeah. Okay? So I hope I didn't overstep my I, bounds. I, think I read every word, and yeah, I think I'm, you did I'm great. I'm not trying to create any <laughs> kind of new policies or anything. I'm just trying to tell you what I understand to be... The historical evolution of the sacrament. Nice, nice. Well, I want to jump into that. So maybe let's just hit on some high points of the history from, I guess, the the first time the sacrament was passed as a formal church was when the church was uh, created. It was formalized, right? Right. Yeah. And the cover of the book shows that. It's the the meeting on April 6th, 1830 in the Peter Whitmer home. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. What day of the week was that, Kurt? Oh, (laughs) It wasn't a Sunday. Uh, no. It was a Tuesday. Okay, Tuesday. All right. So, I'm going there in October. That'll be good okay, to, great. to use. Yeah, immediately we're not on course with having sacrament meeting every Sunday. Uh-huh. So there's an interesting look at 
how often sacrament meeting was held. And it wasn't always consistent. It wasn't always on Sunday. In the early days of the church, it was held when it was convenient. And the churches that spread beyond just uh, the Kirtland area and the Nauvoo area and, and all of that became, you had all these branches all over the place. And they kind of held the meeting when they could. Yeah. yeah. And there was persecution raging. I mean, you had to hide in order to meet. Yeah. So what are some other just high points of the history, like bringing us towards modern day that, that stand out for you? Well, okay. So that was obviously an important thing for those 2,000 years. There was no sacrament, authorized sacrament. Then it was restored, and that's talked about in the scriptures. It was interesting that the sacrament was talked about, and the offices in the priesthood were talked about, but there's nothing in the scriptures that tells you how to do the sacrament. Hmm. Okay. The only thing that tells you a little bit about how to do it is that it says the priest should kneel with the congregation. So that was the practice in the church when the congregations were smaller. And eventually the, the church changed that policy to saying that just the person saying the prayer could kneel. Yeah, that's interesting. I never realized that there was a time where everybody in the sacrament. Yeah. And that's scriptural. It, it, yeah. Yeah. Would, would kneel. Is that Doctrine and Covenants 20 or what? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess I've never picked up on that. Here we yeah. go. I'll pay more attention. Yeah. So so that was interesting how, how all that happened. A big, big change came not until 1911 when the common goblet was eliminated yeah. and individual sacrament cups were used. And the common goblet being there was one goblet that was filled with water, I yeah. assume, that, and it got passed around. It did. And another thing, I, it makes sense once you frame it this way, but... You think of the sacrament now, you know, 10, 15 minutes, we got everybody covered with individual cups. But if it's one goblet, that's going to take a long time. So yep. they would continue on with the sacrament they, or the talks. That's right. And the meeting as this goblet was being passed around. Exactly. Right? After the saints arrived in Salt Lake Valley, before they had built their own meeting houses, they used to meet on Temple Square for the sacrament in the old tabernacle. And then in the building we called the, the tabernacle, the the newer tabernacle. Uh-huh. So they'd meet there on Sundays, thousands of them, and they'd have the sacrament and the, the leaders would preach. And because of so many people needing the sacrament, it was passed while Brigham Young was speaking. And he was known for speaking for at length sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and I always think back then there wasn't a whole lot to do. Yeah. So it's like, you might as well listen to Brigham Young talk yeah. more. You know? yeah. so. Later, when they started building their own meeting houses throughout the valley, then that was changed. But for many years, the sacrament services were held on Temple Square. Huh. And when you mentioned that there was like one goblet, I should clarify that in a meeting like that, there was actually a set of goblets oh, okay. and pitchers. So you'd bless the pitchers of water and everything, and then you'd send out a group of goblets throughout the congregation. Gotcha. But they were just passed from person to person. Yeah. 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 And especially since we went through this recent pandemic, the reason the goblet, the communal goblet ended was because of the pandemic, but it actually sort of stopped about 10 years before that, right? That's right. The pandemic was 1918. It uh, started in the, in the spring of 1918. So this was uh, seven years before that. Yeah. People were uncomfortable with passing the, the goblet. Science had discovered As I would be too. <laughs> yeah. Science had discovered that there were problems with that. that yeah. The hygiene wasn't good and they were they had scientific evidence that spread disease and germs. And picture the old sacrament meeting in the eighteen eighties and the farmer just came in from the field and 
And he would drink of it and then pass it to the sweet young lady next to him. And she's thinking, wait a minute. Uh, and, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> you're really and, painting a picture here, Lee. And, and the babies would drink from it. And maybe the babies had just eaten a cracker or something. And then they would drink from the common goblet. So there yeah, I've some, let my three-year-old drink from a glass of mine uh, before. All right. I, that's, it's not pretty, right? <laughs> yeah. So there's some resistance to that. And the church was a little bit slow in making the change for several reasons, two of which were... The goblet was how Christ did it. Right. So let's not change that. Yeah. And from a leadership standpoint, this is really fascinating to me. One that they just wanted to sort of this feeling of like, well, maybe that the quote unquote handbook doesn't say it, but that's how Jesus did it. That's Why right. would we break away if it was good for good enough for Jesus? It's good enough for me. Right? That's the pattern. Yeah. yeah. And secondly, you know, besides that, the priesthood blessed the sacrament. So there's a priesthood blessing, blessing the water. And many thought that that would eliminate the germs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and That's why we bless the food, that yeah, we don't get sick. But it, <laughs> it, it's not that simple. So, yeah. yeah, that was a change. And so the change was kind of interesting. In the Salt Lake 18th Ward, up on the avenues near downtown Salt Lake City, in a Sunday school class, this shows you the power of a Sunday school class. Uh, they got talking about all of this. This was in the 1910 they got talking about this, and they decided to form a committee and go talk to their bishop and stake president with the suggestion that maybe we should do individual sacrament cups. <laughs> so someone got brave. Somebody got like, brave. We're going to run this yeah. up. <laughs> there was a committee formed. I, I wish I could have been on the committee. That yeah. would have been a fascinating yeah, yeah. committee to be on. But uh, they went to the bishop and the stake president who gave them permission to take it up to the next level, which was to the president of the church. <laughs> The bishop of the stake's president said, I'm sorry, we do not have the authority to make such a sweeping change, Yeah, but you're welcome to go talk to the brethren about it. So they got an appointment with the president of the church, <laughs> and they explained everything and laid up, laid the background. And he said, I hear you. I, I know what you're saying. This is a big decision. I will take it to the Quorum of the Twelve in the First Presidency. So they met. They all agreed it was a good idea, and they authorized the Salt Lake 18th Ward to experiment with it on one condition. They said, Dear Salt Lake 18th Ward, you have our permission to experiment with it at your own expense. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thanks a lot. You know, it's like. Because you're making a change yeah, yeah. in things. Now your you have idea, to pay for it, right? Yeah. You have to in invent these individual cups and some kind of trade to transport them, and you yeah. have to be able to clean the cups afterwards. and. Yeah, so it we, was we just, a pretty big change. We just take that for granted. I mean, we'd go on Amazon and find some cups that would work. And I, I think a lot of people did that during the pandemic when suddenly they needed to pass it at home. But then like even creating, you know, you didn't just walk down the store and expect to find little cups that are would work well for the sacrament. So you have to, you have to make them. That's right? right. And it started an industry. People started creating sacrament trays and cups for the Latter-day Saints Yeah, that uh, met the needs of... And so there are various designs of them. In fact, if you go back to the, the church uh, magazines in, the, in that area, the 1910s and 20s and 30s, those magazines had ads for various things. Some of the ads were for sacrament trays. Wow. Somebody would invent a new type of water tray and they would advertise it in the instructor magazine. Yeah. The juvenile instructor. Wow. Yeah. Nice. And little by little, each ward got their own cups and started using them. And I appreciate just this because sometimes we feel like a change is put forward. Like you think of ministering. It, I think there's a lot of elders corn presence out there scratching their head like, don't you guys get it? Like it's been years since they made this change. with Like just do it or, or you know, yeah. do, do the thing. Right. And 
but just to see that even back then with the Saints, it was just sort of this tough change. Like, yeah. you're you're moving the ship in a new direction, and sometimes it takes a little time for everybody to get on board. Yeah, and the Spirit works through marvelous ways and through various people. I can tell you stories about how it's worked through the wives of General Thorne, right. who say, dear, uh, what if we were to do this? Yeah, and, and, yeah. And, everything about that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it seems like the... 1920 pandemic really is what solidified, like, okay, mm-hmm. we are definitely all doing single cups at this point. Yeah. Right? Now, to put this in perspective, you need to understand something about what we call the general handbook. Uh-huh. We're used to it today. Right. You were a bishop and in state presidency, and, and you lived by the handbook. Yeah. It told you how to conduct a sacrament service and how the sacrament was supposed to be taken care of. The very first General handbook wasn't even general so much as it was just a little handbook, and it came out in 1898. Wow. So think about that. For 68 years, the church went without a handbook. Letters were written to bishops and stake presidents, and there were things in some magazines and their bulletins, but it wasn't until till almost the end of the 19th century before there was a general handbook, which started defining things, but not the sacrament. The very first little handbook was just a few pages long. It was a size you could put in your pocket. It talked about tithing. And specifically, it talked about what a bishop should do with tithing in kind. So you're a bishop and someone shows up with a pig. And they say, yeah. Bishop, here's my tithing. Great. So I got a pig. Now, what, how do you handle that? Right, what do yeah. you do with it? Do you sell the pig? Do you slaughter the pig? Where do you keep it? And it started defining things like that. In fact, it, it's interesting that it talked about tithing settlement, how important that was. And we just changed the terminology. Yeah, just recently. Just uh, in the last week or two, it's no longer called tithing settlement, but it's been an important principle for a long, long time. Yeah. So the handbook started growing in size. It came out more regularly until we have today's handbook, which is interesting because it's now online. Yeah. The handbook used to be just for priesthood leaders, and it was very carefully controlled. Right. It's changed. Now, for the first time, just a few years ago, anybody in the world, Latter-day Saint or non-Latter-day Saint, can look up the handbook and know what we believe in and how yeah. we do it. And it's up to date, right? That and it's up to date. Usually, you'd have some notes or, yep. like, you know, reference up, this letter or glue yep. in that letter. There you or, go. It's yeah. up to date, and it's in many languages. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Oh, and there, the, another part, uh, you know, you, you talked about how... Everybody in the congregation would kneel during the blessing of the sacrament, but there were times where they'd even hold their hands up, you know, very similar to maybe some things we see in the temple, right? That that type of ordinance and blessing. See, in the absence of a handbook that told you exactly how to do it, you were left to your own way of doing it. And the members of the church came from many other religions and many other countries, and in the absence of direct directions... They would kind of do what they thought was best and maybe what had been going on before and if they'd been to the temple. Yeah. So there were these things that were never officially doctrine and never handbook items, but they crept into the sacrament ordinance. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, another thing I learned, there was a time that, and I think it was more recent, where on a general conference weekend, people would gather at the chapel maybe in an evening and partake of the sacrament. I, how long ago was that? Well, yeah, and I have to study the dates on that, but general conferences changed over the years. Yeah. Now we have general conference uh, Saturday and Sunday, four or five sessions. It didn't used to be that way. When I was young, there was a general conference session always held on the 6th of April. Hmm. Even if it was a Thursday or a Wednesday, we held general conference on that date. Oh, fascinating. 
you'd have that, and then you'd have the Saturday Sunday, or you'd have a Saturday Monday if the sixth was a Monday. And the sessions were different. They were different lengths and different speak kinds of speaking. And Sometimes all that. they'd have like a welfare session. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, that, that, and the General Sunday School Union would have their own little conference, yeah. and the Mutual would have their conference in June and all that. So anyway, you're here having sacrament meetings, and sacrament's very important. We want to have it as often as we can. And here comes General Conference. So there was a period of time when... After general conference was finished, you'd go over to the meeting house and have the sacrament. And we used to do that for state conferences, too. State conferences used to be quarterly. That's right. And (laughs) every state presidency is like thinking, what? Yeah. (laughs) yeah. I would have to do this quarterly? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it was the practice to go over to the meeting house uh, afterwards and have the sacrament. Short meeting. Yeah. And then the sacrament. And back then, this is probably before the block schedule. And so this people are used to going back to the church maybe in the evening. That's right? right. Yeah. The block came out in 1980, and this was well before that. Yeah. Tell me about the, obviously, before the block, the block schedule, like these organizations or auxiliaries back then definitely felt more like independent at times. Like they were yeah. running on their own and type thing. So how does the Sunday school, what's the story yeah. behind Sunday school and sacrament? Yeah. Great story. So the Sunday school was established by someone who wasn't doing it by assignment. He established it after the saints arrived in the valley. He thought it was good to get the young people together and educate them better in the gospel. So Sunday school was held uh, first in just a small group, then several small groups. And as it grew, the general authorities realized it was a good thing. So they said, let's adopt this. And they said, let's adopt this, make sure it's held regularly, and let's have the sacrament served each time we have Sunday school. So in, 19, in 1877 was when the sacrament began being served in Sunday school. And the bishopric was encouraged to attend Sunday school. Sunday school began as just something for young people. And then the adults got involved. And pretty soon the bishopric is asked to attend and make sure it's done yeah. right. And the sacrament begins to be served. So from 1877 to, 18, or to 1980, so for 103 years, oh, wow. we had the sacrament in Sunday school. And in sacrament meeting, meaning that we go twice each Sunday to have the yeah. sacrament. My grandkids don't believe I'm telling the truth on that because they don't know what that's all about. Yeah. But we used to get up in the morning on Sundays, go to priest meeting, go back home, pick up the family, go to Sunday school, go home, rest in the afternoon, come back in the evening, have a sacrament. And you'd have sacrament in both Sunday school and sacrament. We did. Nice. And as a deacon, I liked that because I was able to serve the sacrament, to pass the sacrament or be involved in the sacrament at least twice each Sunday. Yeah, interesting. And I mean, to us, it sounds so foreign, but I mean, did you, was there ever the question like, why are we double dipping today? Like, what, what is the, why are we doing this twice? I mean, but it was just the way it was done, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> what we did. Yeah. 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 Tell me about, this is a new, a new thing. I actually asked my dad about it. And he, he remembered the sacrament gems. What, yeah. what, what, was, what were the oh, sacrament gems? Sacrament gems were great. My very first talk at a pulpit in church was to give a sacrament gem. So I was probably, oh, I might have been four or five years old. And the church sent out to all the wards and branches a specific sacrament gem. They sent it out by way of the church magazine, the instructor. And it would say, this is this month's sacrament gem. It's a short statement about the Savior and the sacrament that is to be repeated, said by a person, then repeated by the congregation prior to the blessing of the sacrament. Wow. It's called the sacrament gem. Wow. Yeah. And, and so these were short so that 
you would say it and then everybody would say then come up and say it right after they'd right. repeat after you and then then the sacrament would be blessed wow and they were focused on the savior and scriptures and whatnot yeah they yeah. came from the sacrament hymns or from the scriptures typically that's the right. source of the short little sacrament gym and if you had a junior sunday school in your ward which our ward did the senior Sunday school would be upstairs meeting and having their own sacrament. Downstairs would be the young children, and we had a sacrament service for them. And their sacrament gym was very short, like Jesus wept. That, oh, okay. m- that might be all, all that it was. <laughs> and, and during this time, they did primary during the week, right? Yes. So yeah. during Sunday school, you had place for children, a sort of a Sunday school for children and younger kids. Right? That's right. We met, our junior Sunday school met in the, what we call the Relief Society room which was used by the Relief Society on weekdays, but not on Sunday. Yeah. And then all the adults would be in a separate uh, room. They would be upstairs in the chapel. In the chapel. Uh-huh. And the meeting was conducted by the Sunday school superintendency, not by the bishopric. Yeah. And then that eventually got changed. Yeah. Yeah. And it used to be a Sunday school superintendent. Yeah. And now it's a Sunday school president. I believe President Nelson changed that, right? That's right. President Nelson's first general assignment in the church was to be the general Sunday school president of the church. He had been the, the stake president of the Bonneville Stake and then was called to be the general Sunday school president. And you know President Nelson, he doesn't sit on, <laughs> on things. And he began re- making recommendations. He would meet often with the president of the church and he'd say, President, uh, you know, we have a, a president for the primary and a president for the young women, but we have a superintendent for the Sunday school. What do you think about the idea of making all of us presidents? Yeah. And this present church says, I like that idea. And pretty soon they made the change. That's yeah. awesome. So there was that. And it was also called the Deseret Sunday School Union. And President Nelson suggested that the word Deseret be, be dropped from it. And now today we have the that General the, Sunday School Presidency, right? That's right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And President Nelson was involved in that assignment for, I'm thinking, eight years or something. And he made, he was the one and his super, his assistants, and the general authorities brought into play during that period of time the way we do Sunday school now with kind of rotating through the topics and making sure all wards were coordinated and doing the same type of thing in yeah. Sunday school. Yeah, that's fascinating. What about, you mentioned, where are some interesting places that the sacrament has been administered? Yeah, yeah, I, I love the chapter on that. If you were to talk to members of the church and to say, tell me an interesting thing about where you may have been for the sacrament. You'll get a lot of interesting answers. Yeah. It's not always in, in your meeting house. Yeah. But the, the chapter talks about how, um, for instance, Don Lind partook of the sacrament in space. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> Don Lind was born in Murray, educated, became a scientist, and became an astronaut. And uh, he was assigned to be one of the seven-member crew on the Challenger that went up in 1985. You might remember the Challenger because less than a year later, it was the one that blew up. Yeah, on its, tragic. Yeah. yeah. So Don Lynn was on, the, on that, and he realized that he'd be in space for a week and that it would include a Sunday. So he went to his bishop to gain permission to have the sacrament, and the bishop said that'd be fine. So Don took up his scriptures and prepared for this and had the sacrament in space. He was going thousands of miles an hour, and he was many miles above <laughs> orbiting the, earth, the earth, orbiting right? the earth when he did that. And he, he was asked to speak in general conference, in the priesthood session of general conference in October 
1985, right after he got back from his uh, his stint in space. He was asked by the First Presidency to tell about it. And so you can read about that. If oh, you cool. go to the October 1985 General Conference, you'll read the entirety of Brother Lin's talk. And he talked about how interesting it was because you're in weightlessness. Yeah, and you're, you need to kneel when he blesses his aggravation. That's right. right. <laughs> and you're in this space shuttle where only a tiny portion of it at the very front of it is where you live. Everything else is... Space stuff, space astronaut stuff. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so he went into his little place where he slept, and he tried to kneel on the ceiling and brace himself and bless the sacrament. And he says it was one of the most special experiences wow. he's ever had. Wow. And the, the uh, triple combination he took into space, he donated to the First Presidency, and so that is now in the hands of the church. Oh, wow. That's cool. All right, now uh, on the other end of the spectrum, the depths of the sea. Yeah. Yeah, there was a uh, submarine commander who was Latter-day Saint, and uh, he tells the story about how they had the sacrament, they were authorized to have the sacrament while they were underwater, and how interesting it was and how special it was to be able to, to do that. Yeah, and you, t- you reference, I don't know if they call it turbulence, but it was a pretty bumpy yeah. ride. Yeah, there. one time, instead of being totally submerged, they were at, they were commanded to, instructed to be at the level of the ocean. So oh, okay. they're floating like a boat would float, gotcha. like a cruise ship would yeah, float. Yeah. So they're bouncing all over the place trying to bless the sacrament. Awesome. And the book itself, there's in that chapter you talk about different war experiences with the sacrament. I mean, that chapter alone is, is so fascinating. So, all right. So let's get into, as we venture into maybe more leadership adjacent, I mean, obviously the sacraments, it's something that is done under authority and, and priesthood and keys and whatnot. So it's obviously already uh, leadership adjacent, but there's this concept of, of white shirts, right? And we have, I remember like you, I wouldn't even have a chance to leave my house as a, as a young deacon teacher to go to church and pass a sacrament if I did not have a white shirt on. I mean, right. that's just like the household I grew up in, right? Yeah. Now, it doesn't say in the handbooks. And so, these are one of those things like, I always want to be careful not to perpetuate something that's not necessarily official policy, but it is tradition. And so, What's the deal with white shirts and sacrament? Yeah, well, at first it didn't matter what the, the people involved in the sacrament wore. Talking about the 1800s, pioneer days and all that. The emphasis was on coming to church, period. Yeah. And coming in a clean manner. And nobody was trying to tell you to wear a white shirt. They just wanted you to have clean clothes and be yeah. groomed and all that. Well, eventually, as the young men got involved in the sacrament, first it was the older men who were primarily doing all of the sacrament functions. As the young men got involved, different wards and stakes, it was kind of left up to them what they wanted to do with the what you wore. Yeah. And some went in the direction of uniforms. There was a, a ward that said, we want all of our young men to wear white shirts, long sleeve white shirts with bow, black bow ties. And when they pass the sacrament, we want them to line up in order of height. So that was done. And... Uh, that caught on in some stakes. Other stakes had different ideas. And pretty soon the church said, no, we don't want to have it so uniform. We want it to be less obtrusive. Right. And so there was a time when the handbook did ask you to wear a white shirt when possible. Uh-huh. And that's still kind of the, the thing. It's it's highly encouraged to wear a white shirt, but it's not mandatory. And that's because we're such a worldwide church. Yeah. I mentioned in the book that Holly and I were on a trip to Fiji. So one Sunday morning, we went to the local meeting house in Fiji, and uh, there was a wonderful congregation of members singing a cappella. It was beautiful singing. 
And there at the sacrament table were the young men, and some of them were in those skirts that they wear in yeah. Fiji, you uh-huh. know, which was proper dress for them, and it's their formal dress. And so here were these young men at the sacrament table. They weren't even wearing uh, pants. They were wearing these dresses, but they were dressed nicely in white shirts. And as the prayers were finished, one of the young men, as he stood up, he took his sandals off and left them there at the bench and passed the sacrament without shoes. Oh, wow. So afterwards, I went up and talked to him, and he couldn't speak English, but his dad could. And he said, John loves the sacrament and loves the Savior. He wants to do all he can to honor the Savior, and he did that by removing his shoes. So if you think that it's necessary to wear shoes to pass the sacrament, yeah. here's an example of how maybe right. you didn't have to. Yeah, and he was doing that not because he was more comfortable, but out of a form of respect, right? Yep. And, yep. and what a great, great yep. thing to do there. So it's gone through various uh, various things. It's, it's very uh, leadership-driven. In some stakes and wars, they'll be very firm, and they, yeah. they say, this is what we want you to do. Yeah. But if you read the conference talks by people like Elder Holland and Elder Oaks, they'll say, try not to do anything that uh, detracts from the sacrament. So take off your jewelry and dress appropriately. So yeah. that you don't detract from the sacrament. Yeah. My mom would never let me wear those uh, cool Donald Duck tights. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Right? You know? Yeah. And I know get that there's probably something to do. But yeah, for our family, that was sort of the encouragement, right? Yeah. So, all right. So, what about the presiding authority taking the sacrament first? Yeah. And I would say that there's not like one clear, obvious answer. Here it is. Maybe there is. But I've heard, you know, there's reference in Doctrine... Or, um, 3 Nephi 18, it talks about the sacrament and the Savior gave the sacrament to his... 12 disciples first, yes, and then to the congregation. And yes. so, and I've heard some people claim, no, this is simply a tradition, even though it says it in the handbook, it's not doctrinally or uh, yeah. scripturally connected. So, how would you respond to okay. this concept or, or unpack right. it? First, let's start with today's handbook. Today's handbook clearly instructs that the presiding authority should be served first. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes that's a little confusing to deacons. In our ward the other day, we happen to have a general authority living here in our ward. He can occasionally, but not often, come to sacrament. So <laughs> the bishopric just loves that. Right? Oh yeah. <laughs> so the bishop is conducting, and the deacons know who the bishop is, and he normally gets the sacrament first. The stake president is in attendance, and he's welcomed, and the general authority is in attendance, and he's welcomed, and and the bishop says, and he's presiding. Yeah. So the poor deacon, he gets the, the <laughs> bread like tray, the, and he walks up on the pop stand. Pop quiz. Here we go. <laughs> and he's thinking now. Who's who? Yeah. And so the bishop points down there and the stake president points down there and they finally were able to give the sacrament to the right person. So it's very clear today how we do it. But there was a time in the church where it wasn't that well defined and it just made sense to give it to whoever the leaders were. Yeah. And at one time, the deacons, two deacons were instructed to walk up on the stand, stop and stand in the middle of the stand and then begin serving and moving towards the edge of the stand. So whoever was there, got it next. Uh But think about this. You mentioned the Book of Mormon example. Okay, when Christ instituted the sacrament during the Last Supper, he prepared the sacrament, he blessed the sacrament. Who got it first? Did the presiding authority get it first? Uh, no. No. Right? That would be Jesus Christ, right? We don't know for sure who got yeah, it maybe, first. Yeah, maybe maybe he did, but, he but nobody I, recorded it. I right? don't think he took it first. Yeah. I think he passed it. Was it? He was passing the sacrament. He was right? passing it to others. When the church was restored in the Whitmer home on April 6, 1830, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery presided and 
did the sacrament. They blessed the sacrament and then began passing it. And to my knowledge, there's no record of who got it first. Oh, interesting. I don't think they passed it to themselves first. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. Wow. So for many years, it was just obvious we should go to the presiding authority. That made sense to us. But there was a time in the church, if I'm not mistaken, that a high counselor was considered to have authority. So if the high counselor was in your sacrament meeting, here's the bishop, his counselor is the high counselor. The high counselor would get the sacrament first. Oh, wow. That's no longer the case. Right. The high counselor does not preside. He does not have keys. And so if a high counselor attends your meeting, he does not get past the sacrament first. Yeah. So I've, I assume this is the case, but if President Pace shows up, the general Sunday school president, he's not... He's an auxiliary or an organizational leader, so he would not preside, right? Because he's a general authority, it's my understanding, he would sit on the stand and he would get the sacrament first oh, interesting. Out, of, okay. out of courtesy. Okay. All I right. So. And obviously, if he does come to your ward, just do what he says. Yeah. <laughs> so. The general authorities are instructed that if they attend a meeting, they should sit on the stand yeah. and identify themselves so that that can be taken care of. Yeah. 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 Interesting. So... I mean, and I realize, again, there's not like a clear scripture chapter verse per se, but why do you think we do that? Like respect, recognizing authority? I mean, what would you speculate? Yeah, it's respect. It would be yeah. awkward not to do it that way, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's respect and it teaches an important principle. There is someone at that meeting who presides. Yeah. And he should uh, should be honored by starting the sacrament. Yeah, that way. especially in the cadence of an ordinance, right? That it is according to this person's... This person represents keys to some extent, yeah. whether he officially has them or not. And those keys are, are what are allowing this ordinance to yeah. move forward. But see, that wasn't defined even in the early handbooks until later on. Huh. Um, the Sunday School Union used to get together for their annual conference. So this is in the late 1800s. And sometimes there were question and answer periods. And I can show you in some of their minutes how the question came up. In our Sunday School meetings, who should get the sacrament first? And they kind of, the, the one leading the conference says, well, we'll have to look into that. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not sure. You know, yeah. Probably the one who's the presiding authority. Should, should yeah. Begin it. But it wasn't well defined. Yeah. And even, I'm trying to think if the hammock says anything, and obviously I can look up later, but even in the context of an elders quorum, when you're meeting as a quorum, you know, the elders quorum is sort of the stake. Uh, you're under the keys of the stake president per se. But the bishop's there, so who presides in the elders' quorum? Is there any, do you know of any defined, as far as who presides in that meeting? Well, okay, so the elders' quorum president, he already has the meeting planned, he's got the prayer planned, and who's giving the lesson. But the minute the bishop shows up, he's in charge. Okay. And then elders' quorum president should probably say to the bishop, Bishop, we're so glad to have you here. What would you like to have done in this meeting? Yeah. And if the bishop wants to go a different direction, then that's what you do. Yeah. You yeah. throw your agenda out and you do what the bishop wants. Same thing with the stake president when he comes to sacrament. Right. And a stake president probably say something like, well, bishop, we love you and we trust you and we think you have a wonderful program friend. Yeah. Please proceed. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I, I remember being at the, one sacrament in particular, I was in the stake presidency, showed up. The speakers did not show up and I was the presiding authority. So the bishop looked at me and said, you know, what do you want to do? Yeah. <laughs> so I had to come up with the... And it yep. worked out great. But. And I should just mention, too, that there are different personalities involved. Yeah. There are some general authorities who, when they come to a sacrament meeting, expect to have expect to have a different sacrament meeting than what was planned. Right. Others are happy to just let it happen. So 
over time, there have been different personalities and different ways of doing that. Sometimes they come with an agenda. They come and they say, I'm here because I need to talk to you. Yeah. Other times they just come as a nice visitor and they're happy to let you. Yeah. Fascinating concepts. And a lot of these things, we don't think about them because they just sort of happen, but then something changes and we're like, oh no, what do we do now? You yeah. know, so they're fun to talk about here and there. Worthiness to partake the sacrament. This is, I think even in recent years, been really a touchy subject of, you know, part of the role in the authority of the bishop, that he can res- he can restrict ordinances, one mm-hmm. of them being the sacrament. So, from your standpoint and understanding, what can you teach us about what's going on there? Why do we do that? Anything come to mind? Yeah. Well, as I see it, there, there are two levels, two types of worthiness. The worthiness to partake of the sacrament and the worthiness to participate in preparing, blessing, and passing the sacrament. So, okay. two different kinds of worthiness there. The scriptures, as I understand it, uh, there are four places in the scriptures that talk about worthiness as it pertains to the sacrament. They all kind of say the same thing, that you really should be worthy to partake of the sacrament. It's a very special thing, and if you partake of it unworthily, that's not good. So that's scriptural. So the church has almost always said that that's what needs to be done. And so you'll find that the handbook says to a bishop, if someone who's being involved in the in the sacrament is not worthy, you know of a transgression, you should ask him to repent and take care of that before he participates in the sacrament. Yeah. So that's the instruction. Now, whether you can always carry that out, I'm not sure. It also says that members, that the sacrament is for the members of the church, but bishops are instructed not to withhold the sacrament from others who attend the meeting. Hmm. So, that's gone back and forth in the history of the church. There were some times during the early history of the church where it was, think of it as a closed church. Only sincere visitors were allowed to come in. And so the sacrament was normally a special thing for just the members and maybe special visitors. Now that's been opened up a bit more, and the instruction is not to restrict it from people who come. There may be a very sincere person who comes who's not a member of the church who wants to partake of the sacrament, and, and it's okay for that person to partake of the sacrament. Yeah. What would you say to maybe someone investigating the church who comes to the first sacrament? I think it's really kind to at least run them through, hey, they're going to come to you with the sacrament. You're yep. welcome to partake, or you shouldn't, or what, what would and you And I say? think you've said it just right. Uh, when it comes to you, this is in remembrance of Christ. It's something that we as members of the church do to renew our baptismal covenants, and to remember and honor Christ, you are welcome to partake of it, but you don't have to. You yeah. don't want to. Yeah, you can just pass it by and nobody yeah. will think the difference. And some find this motivational. They'll say, okay, I'm not going to partake of it till I'm baptized. Yeah. And it gives them an incentive to become a member of the church because they want to partake of the sacrament. Yeah. Yeah. And I realize there, I think there's some people out there who have really strong feelings about even to the point that they don't let their children partake of the sacrament until they're eight and baptized. And, and that's, that's incorrect. Yeah. And it's. I mean, my two-year-old looks forward to it every week. <laughs> yeah. The thing comes up in the book, we talk about which hand should you use to partake of the sacrament. What's your answer well, to that? I know or, now they've updated the handbook to reference the right hand, right? Use the right hand when possible. Uh-huh. Not everybody has a right hand. Yeah. Okay. So that's the preferred thing. And there are talks by general authorities that, that remind you that when you're making covenants, you're using the right hand and that the, the sacrament is another covenant and that's... When possible, a right hand is a good thing. 
But then President Nelson, when he was a, a regional representative, gave an interesting talk about that and said, when possible, we should use the right hand. And he said, it's good for parents, maybe in a family home evening or something, to teach this to their children. It's better to do it then than to, than to do it during the sacrament yeah. when you're in the chapel. Slapping left hands. That's <laughs> right. Do it in yeah. a way that, so they can understand it and they're not embarrassed yeah. by it. Yeah. There's a gentle, nice way to teach that. And then just a gentle reminder during the sacrament would be all that's yeah. necessary. So it hasn't been taught an awful lot lately in the church, I don't think. But it's in the handbook. Yeah, I was surprised to see that sort of really emphasized in the, in the yeah. recent handbook changes. So, And I'm left-handed, so I really have to think about it sometimes. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> so so there, I've heard this concept discussed in several contexts and, and talks and whatnot. You reference a talk by Elder Delbert Stapley in October 1965 as far as partaking, he says, partaking of the sacrament, we renew all covenants entered into with the Lord. Is that uh, sound doctrine or what, what, what do you understand well, about that? Okay, <laughs> you'll notice in the book, I have a chapter about the covenant, how the baptism covenant is renewed as you partake of the sacrament. Then I pause and I say, by the way, there have been some who have taught. Right, yeah. And so I'm not trying to create new doctrine here, (laughs) but there have been a number of conference talks and other things where they've said uh, very clearly that the sacrament renews not only your baptismal covenant, but all covenants you've made with the Lord. Yeah. So... It's different. I mean, whether it's true or not, it's a, maybe a good state of mind to go into the sacrament yeah, with and say, that's right. I'm it, recommitting to all things, all yeah, covenants. Have yeah. that in your mind. And as you take the sacrament, you're not just thinking of baptism, but you're thinking of your your priesthood covenants and your marriage covenants and your temple covenants. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And I, I sort of, when I go to the a temple session, I sort of take on that frame of mind thinking that, yeah, I'm here for this person's work that I'm in proxy for, but I see this as a renewal of my own temple covenants in some way. And, and when I leave here, I want to be just as committed as the first time yeah. that I went through. You know? If you go back into the old improvement era, I think it was in the improvement era, there used to be a question and answer thing every month. Hmm. Okay, Members could ask a question and then the church would assign somebody, not always a general authority, but it might be an instructor in institute or seminary or something to answer the question. And in the book, I talk about that. The question came up about does the sacrament renew all covenants or just the baptismal covenant? And this particular brother who answered the question used references and talks and all that, and he clearly said it renews all covenants. Wow. And so that was printed in the church's yeah. magazine. Yeah. But the magazine the, it says in small print, the answers do not constitute the yeah. doctrine. These are, you know. Right, right. Yeah, so I would say, like, if a leader ever gets that question or is teaching about the sacrament, maybe that's a concept you could introduce, but it's not that the church has a statement saying this is yeah. this is doctrine. Right? I think we're in the habit of saying that it renews the baptismal covenant, right. but it maybe does more than that. Yeah, sure. Let's see. So I had an experience as a bishop one Sunday. I, um, you know, you're sort of moseying around waiting for the meeting to start and, you know, go make sure the sacrament's being done. And we are in an area in the inner city, Salt Lake, where, we didn't have a lot of youth, so we didn't have the typical teachers and, and priests that, that did it. So the elders quorum sort of stepped up there. And I walked into I walked into the sacrament preparation room, and there's a good brother in my ward who was there. And his children were in the process of preparing the sacrament. And his little, you know, I think she was probably like seven-year-old girl was putting the cups in the thing. And I thought, hey, we should probably talk about this, what's going on here, right? There you go. And anyway, so 
but we we think of sacrament preparation, we default to teachers. Like that's what the teachers do. And we think uh, the the deacons pass the sacrament, teachers prepare the sacrament, priests bless the sacrament, and of course they can you know help as as they do. But that's not always been the case, right? No. So where where do we begin with that history? Yeah, well, the functions, the actual way you do the sacrament, were not very well defined for many years, and so. The concept of preparing the sacrament, it's not in the scriptures, and it was not in handbooks, and so it was just kind of the custom, and it was not clear who should do it, and so a lot of people other than priesthood holders would do it. It just made sense. The Peter Whitmer home in 1830, we don't have a record of it, but I don't think Joseph and Oliver got the bread out and got the water out for the sacrament. It may have been their wives. I don't know. Or Joseph could have said at the last minute, hey, why don't we do the sacrament? You got bread? Yeah. You know, like. Yeah. <laughs> there are instances where the custodians used to do it. Back before you had sacrament preparation rooms and even kitchens in yeah. old meeting houses, the custodian's responsibility sometimes was go down to the stream with a big bucket. <laughs> get a big bucket of water and do this early in the morning. Set the bucket in the church, let the stuff settle to the bottom, oh and goodness. let the things float to the top and then use a scoop take the things off the top, and then ladle out the clean water for the sacrament. In the common goblet, right? <laughs> yeah. So this was the custodian doing it, uh-huh. not, a, not right. a young man who was a teacher. Yeah. Wow. There was a time when women did it. They did it by assignment from a bishop. They did a good job. They baked the bread and they launder the tablecloths, the, the sacrament cloths and all that. And so they were doing it. And it wasn't until... I think it's like 1933 or something that you see the first mention of the function called preparing the sacrament and that that was a priesthood responsibility and that it was a teacher in the priesthood who was to do that. Yeah. And you mentioned in the book that even when, you know, obviously deacons used to be older men in the church, it was more formalized later on that 12, 13 and now 11-ish and 13-year-old, you know, to 13-year-olds are the deacons and whatnot. But even back then, people thought, this is disrespectful to have these hoodlums, you know, passing the sacrament. And now it's all we know. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the, the first presidency in Quorum of the Twelve in the early uh, 1900s was a little concerned about the ironic priesthood young men. They said, how can we get them more involved in meaningful things? And one of the answers was, let's get them more involved in the sacrament. And so specific ordination ages came about. Okay. Yeah. That didn't just happen until, you know, at first it was in the 1900s when there was a systematic way of ordaining young men to deacon, teacher, and priest. And over time, those ages have been modified occasionally. Yeah. And in we've fact, all witnessed that. Yeah. Recently, yeah. now it's 11 and a half or 11 plus, yeah. 13 plus, 15 plus. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. So what about this? Will there be a sacrament meeting someday where Jesus Christ presides? What's the deal with that? All right, I'm going to open up the book because I don't want to say this incorrectly, but uh, there are several scriptures that talk about how when Christ returns again, there will be a great meeting held and the sacrament will be served. So you can call it a sacrament meeting. In attendance, and this is from the Doctrine and Covenants 27, will be Jesus Christ, Moroni, Elias, John the Baptist, Elijah, Joseph, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Michael, who's Adam, Peter, James, and John, and others. That's the sacrament meaning that Christ will preside at. And he's, he talks in terms of this. But I say unto you, this is in Matthew, but I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine 
until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And he says, mm-hmm. For the hour cometh that I will drink of the fruit of the vine with you on the earth. That's in Doctrine and Covenants 27. So this is, this is after the restoration of the church. He's saying there will come a time when I will again drink of the fruit of the vine with you on the earth. He's talking about a future sacrament. Gotcha. Wow. Now, the question comes out, so do we have the sacrament in heaven? I have no idea. Yeah. And we don't necessarily know the location of that sacrament meeting. It's just going to happen somewhere. Yeah. And those people are yeah. going to be there and others. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's cool. Those are the fun things to think about. And I hope I'm on the guest list. I just... You know. Wouldn't that be a privilege? <laughs> right. Yeah. I hope they can Zoom the meeting. Right. So that it gets broadcast to all yeah. the members, all the world. Yeah. could see it happen. Really cool. Well, Lee, this has been a fun conversation. Any point or concept we you want to make sure we cover that we didn't already? Or did we do a good job? did a great job. This awesome. is a pleasure to be with you. It's a yeah. wonderful topic, and I'm grateful to be able to visit with you about it. Well, I'm so glad you wrote the book. And, uh, you know, I went into it sort of, you know, some his, you know history-focused books, you're not sure what you're, you're going to get. Is this sort of a dry event-by-event, event, you know, book? or? But I was surprised just from the first chapter to like, wow, the, I'm really interested. And, oh, and, and you did a good job there. And good. I would say, like, this is a great book for... Even a, you know, with young children, I would not have a problem like reading a chapter on a Sunday and, have, and then talking about it, right? And, and introducing the history of the yeah. sacrament to them. Yeah. You, you weren't looking for, this isn't a scholarly academic book that the, the only PhDs will really appreciate. This is a really universal text, right? Oh, thank you. Yeah, so, I appreciate that. And obviously, you can get it on Amazon. You can. And hopefully. And, and through Brigham Distributing or just. Send me an email, and I'll, I don't like to sell the book because it's about the sacrament. So, I, oh yeah, if, yeah. if you'll sure. contact me, I'll give you a copy well, of the hey, book. Listen, we'll buy the book if you promise to keep writing, and if that <laughs> if that motivates you enough, we'll do it. So, uh, any ideas for your next book, or what's it going to be? I, I, I will have a next book. I never disclose the book All until right. it's published. All I, right, I, I kind of keep my family and everybody <laughs> guessing on that. Okay, well, please let us know, and that that'll be awesome. Last question I have for you is: in, you reflect on your time in leadership, these opportunities you've had to lead in the restored gospel. How has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Oh, great question. I was a much better member of the church after I served as a bishop. I was an even better member of the church after I served as a mission president. I was a better member of the church after I served my first mission as a young man. Yeah. Leadership does wonderful things to strengthen you and to give you a perspective so that you're more in touch with what the gospel really means. It's a wonderful thing. Even if you're just like the chorister in primary, it helps you helps you see what's going on and helps you feel what's going on. It's wonderful. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. Remember, solve the burden of meetings by visiting leadingsaints.org 14 and getting 14 days access to the Meetings with Saints virtual library.
It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.